Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. with a short Hasidic story. Have you all heard of Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev, the Berdichev Rebbe? He was one of the beloved Hasidic masters from Poland. And he went off to study with the illustrious Magid of Mezrich, who inherited the mantle of the early Hasidic movement when the Baal Shem Tov died. So he spent years with the Magid, and he came home, and his father-in-law, who was perturbed that he had left his daughter, Levi Yitzchak's wife, to go off and study, he said, "No, what did you learn in Berdichev that you couldn't have learned here? What's so important? And so Levi Yitzchak said, I want you to know I learned that there's a God who is the creator of heaven and earth. And the father-in-law is like dumbstruck, and he pulls the maid over, and he says to the maid, Nu, tell me, is there a God who created heaven and earth? And the maid said, everyone knows there's a God who created heaven and earth. And he turns to Levi Yitzchak and he says, Nu, Lusafraga, you know? And Levi Yitzchak says, that's the whole thing. She says, she knows. A little cryptic, but what does it mean to know something? How do we know? Do you know it from your head on up? Or do you know something in every cell of your body? Lady Yitzchak went to the Magid of Mezrich, and I'll be sharing teachings from the Magid about the wisdom of not knowing, because he was the master of the wisdom of not knowing, of what we don't know. To know that there's a God and to know it not just conceptually, but with every fiber of your being to embody that knowledge is what I call the wisdom of not knowing. Here we are in a library. Jews love books. We are the people of the book, right? We're living, we're living in the information age when the great avatar Google can answer all our questions you know, at the touch of a button. And I have to say, I love it. I have a question, I ask Google, and there it is. 
But the sheer amount of information that we are bombarded with 24-7, morning, noon, and night, can inundate the senses and make it hard to connect with the quieter states of mind, the white space, the wisdom that comes not from thinking and thinking we know, but from silence and curiosity, openness, open-mindedness, receptivity, calm, calm mind. I want to share with you tonight some of the Jewish and other wisdom teachings that I've garnered both in my work as a therapist and in my studies of uh, Jewish mysticism, Midrash, Talmud, over the past 45 years. And how these teachings um, made me curious about the wisdom of not knowing. Let me start with the therapy piece. What do we do in our work as therapists? We are uh, guides to the unknown. People come to therapy to develop courage vis-a-vis -vis the unknown. People come to therapy to learn about the unrealized, unconscious, as yet unknown parts of the self. And as a guide in the work of healing, I have to place myself in that state of not knowing in order to allow the unknown mystery to be revealed. Now, a lot of therapists are very wedded to their theories. And you come into each session schlepping the baggage of all the prior sessions, all the prior stories, and all the prior clients you've seen that remind you of your current client. And all of that is just noise. It's the known. It's my knowing, my knowledge I'm bringing in. All of that I have to take and leave at the door if I want to fully be present, to fully listen <laughs> and create a space where something new and unknown and alive can emerge. Freud said that when he hit a moment in, uh, in a session when something was particularly baffling, what he would do, instead of going through his Freudian theories to try and explain the Oedipus complex or whatever it is that's going on, that instead he would shine a light, a beam of intense darkness on the baffling situation. He would shine a beam of intense darkness to endarken the mystery. Now this phrase he used, which was in the German, and I don't have it at the tip of my tongue right now, is directly a phrase that he took from the Zohar, Bocina di Cardenuta, that describes the creation of heaven and earth, that first flash of light that impregnated the womb of darkness that 
it was the quantum void, the cosmic void, the space of endarkening. So it's a bit of a paradox. If you want to understand, if you want to learn something new, if you want something new to be revealed, and not just the same old, you have to put aside your knowing and instead of trying to enlighten yourself with all your ideas and theories, you have to be willing to be patient and not know. We don't like doing that, right? Okay, so that's just like a little bit about the therapy piece. Over here in my, uh, other, the other hat I wear in my life as a teacher of Jewish mysticism, wherever I turn, I'm bumping up against the unknown. The Torah, of course, is nigla v'nistar. It's revealed and it's hidden. There's the pshat, there's the simple meaning, and then there are layers upon layers of hidden meaning. And the Torah is a bride that slowly reveals herself to those who seek with curiosity. The Jewish mystical tradition is saturated with teachings about what is unknown. Who is God? What is God? God in Kabbalah, let's just take a look. You know, I gave you these uh, formidable handouts. Think of it as your weekly reader to take home and study. I may reference a few little phrases here and there as, as I riff on this uh, subject that I love so much. Um, so on the second page, the two little teachings from Kabbalah, number two on page two. The highest rung on the tree of life, and when I'm talking about the tree of life, we're talking about the Sifirotic diagram that describes the hishtal shalut, the unfolding of divinity from infinite, making its way into the finite realm in creation. So the highest rung, the first point, the highest point is called the unknowable head, resha de lo yada u de la itiada, the head or the source which neither knows nor is known. And each of our souls is rooted in that highest point of keter. Keter means crown. It's, it's the point before the Big Bang. Even though Big Bang theory is actually on its way out among cosmologists, there was some kind of moment before everything that exists came into being. Our souls are rooted in that point which is called the unknowable head. How do we come close to God? How do we know God? How do we fulfill the very first mitzvah? Go back to page one, number one. Rambam, Maimonides, great philosopher and encoder of Jewish law, wrote the Sefer HaMitzvot, which lists, enumerates the 613 commandments. The very first one is, Mitzvah Rishonah, Mitzvot Haseh Leida, Shiyesh 
Sham Eloha. The very first mitzvah is to acquire knowledge of the nature of God's existence, to understand that he is the original cause and source of existence, who brings all creations into being. So there's an imperative to know God. We have it also in Hilchot Yesodea Torah, a different iteration, the foundation, Yesoda Yesodot, the foundation of all, the pillar of wisdom, is to know that there's a primal existence. But then in Maimonides' great philosophical work, the Mora Nevuchim, or Guide to the Perplexed, he says, it's not possible. It's not possible to know God. You know how you can know God? You can know what God isn't. It is not possible except through negation to achieve even that limited apprehension of God, which is in our power to achieve. And that God can't be apprehended by the human intellect. In other words, late machshava tefisa bach klal, as it says again in the Tikkunei Zohar, you can't possibly wrap your mind around God. What happens? Your mind deals in thoughts, which are made up of words. And what do words do? The word for word in Hebrew is milah. And what is a milah? Like a brit milah, it's an incision. It's a cut. It separates. So words and thought create division. We break the totality into bits so that we can wrap our mind around a finite bit, right? But to know God, to know the infinite, to know the Ein Sof, the boundlessness that is the source of all, you can't do it with your mind. You can't do it with your thoughts. That's where not knowing comes in. So here's the paradox. You must know God. That's the first mitzvah incumbent upon every Jew, right? You cannot possibly know God with your mind. The most you can do, Rambam says, is you can know through negation, through subtraction. You can say what God isn't. God isn't a body. God isn't finite. God isn't one thing or any particular thing because God is everything. And that everything is also the nothingness, the Ein Sof, the Ein. Ein Sof is the name Kabbalists use to talk about the divine. Ein Sof means without limit, boundless, undivided, <coughs> non-dual. For sh shorthand, the Zohar and the Hasidic masters just talk about Ain, not. Ain is like no, neti neti, it's sunyata, it's, it's the nothingness that is the source of everything. Are you with me? Question. Well, a comment that this and it may or may not help others, is in talking about the qualities of the Ein Sof, 
one might say the Ein Sof, well, we call it the negation or the nothingness. One of its qualities is infinite intelligence, but potential intelligence, infinite creativity, but that which is not yet manifest. So we say negation, but sometimes that makes us think of nothing. It it's also makes us think of infinite right. possibilities. So right. So it's infinite me. potential. It's the it's the cosmic womb of everything. How does a seed grow? You plant it in the earth, and what happens to the seed? It decomposes. It becomes nothing. But that nothingness it becomes becomes the source of new life, of potential, of growth. So on the one hand, we have the psychological challenges of not knowing, the anxiety that not knowing creates, the fears we have of the unknown, the fear of uncertainty. And on the other end, we have, I think of these as octaves that the wisdom of not knowing is happening at several different octaves. At the lower end, at the psychological end, we're mastering our fear of the unknown. We're dipping our toes in the water of uncertainty. And we're trying on new parts of ourselves. We're expanding. At the highest octave, it's the letting go of everything. It's the dissolving of identity, the dissolving of everything known, everything finite, into this infinite mystery. The rabbis teach that just as God is infinite, the Torah is infinite, and the human soul is infinite. We, in a sense, are unfathomable mysteries living in an incredibly majestic, unimaginable universe. And we should be, at all moments, awestruck. And what happens in states of awe and wonder? You have immense beauty here in Phoenix. I have spent some time years ago in the canyons and mountains here. What happens when you are standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon, looking down. Physically, what happens? Your jaw drops. This is a universal uh, physiological thing that happens when we are awestruck. Our jaws drop. Our pupils dilate. And thoughts and thinking stop. You feel very small standing before the vastness of the majesty, and that smallness is the beginning of the collapse of knowing. Thoughts make no sense when you're standing in the presence of the mystery, the majesty. That's an experience of not knowing. There's several other octaves of not knowing, and they're all very fascinating to me. There's also the octave of what the rabbis in the Talmud call adlo yada, to the point of not knowing. How many of you recognize that phrase from one of our holy days, Purim, which happens to be my favorite, well, one of my favorite 
Jewish holidays, and people laugh at me because whatever holiday I'm teaching, it's my favorite holiday. <laughs> Estelle, you said that about Passover. But no, but Purim, because my Hebrew name is Esther, this holiday was created just for me, so <laughs> I have a special affinity. But the real affinity I have with this holiday stems from understanding the brilliance of the Talmudic sages when they said that one must become so intoxicated on Purim to the point where you can't distinguish the difference between blessed is Mordechai and cursed is Haman. That drunk. What were they thinking? There's a story in the Talmud about Rabbi Zera and Rava got together on Purim one year, and they got so drunk that Rava slits Rav Zera's throat and then resurrects him, brings him back to life. Now, it's not really a story to be taken literally, because what does it mean to be headless, to have your throat slit, is, again, to go beyond thoughts and thinking to stop the dualism of the mind. Purim is probably on the pshat level, on the simple level, when you read the Purim story, it's one of those holidays where they wanted to kill us, and they, the miracle happened and they didn't, and so let's eat, right? <laughs> one of those holidays. On the simple level, it's the battle of good and evil of primordial archetypal good defeating primordial archetypal evil. It's a very dualistic story if you read it on that level. But the rabbis came along generations later and said this remarkable thing that transformed Purim from a holiday that could have gotten stuck in the split of good and evil. And they said you must rise to a level beyond this and that, beyond Eitz Hada'at Tovira, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, of splitting, you must get to the non-dual level where everything comes from a single root that is Einsof, beyond thought, beyond categories, to the oneness. It's extraordinary. Now, it's not apparent when you read the Talmud that Perhaps that's what the rabbis meant. But that's how the Hasidic masters understood it. The Svasemis says that on the tree of life, there are 50 levels of this and that, where things constellate as polarities, and the mind gets involved in arguments, in pilpul, in dialectic. Truth is a dialectic of opposites coming together and finding some synthesis. But that when you get to the 50th gate, Sha'ar Hanun, the 50th gate, it's only one. There's no this and that. And that's what Purim is pointing toward. As a young woman, when I went to Jerusalem to study Torah, this teaching stuck with me. And then throughout the years, as I've marinated in Jewish text and story and uh, mysticism, I keep 
finding this subversive element in the mystical teachings of a place beyond the kosher and non-kosher world where normative Judaism operates, and it has its place and its valid uh, role in distinguishing right from wrong, good from evil, right? Light from darkness. But for the mystics, the aspiration is to go to the source of the soul, to the place where we're not separate, where there's only unity, and where thoughts and thinking break down. Okay, that's a mouthful. But here's why we don't like what I'm talking about. We don't like uncertainty. Neuroscientists say that our brains are wired to resist uncertainty. We like to be in the know. From an evolutionary standpoint, you know why we're all here today? Because our ancestors were afraid of the unknown, and in moments of uncertainty, when they didn't know what was lurking around the corner, they had the adrenaline when that lion came out, they could hightail it out of town. The certainty bias is the way that our brains are wired to prefer to know things rather than to be in the mystery of not knowing. We also have in us an adventurous side, a side that would like to step into the unknown. And we're not all wired the same. Some of us are more adventurous than others. I was very adventurous when I was young. I became more fearful of the unknown as I became a mother and had to protect my offspring. But if we only follow our need for certainty, what happens? Our lives become constricted. We finish people's sentences in our minds before they even finish what they're saying because we already know, we've already formed an opinion. We saw this in the recent election on both sides of the political aisle. People made up their minds. They knew who they wanted to vote for and no evidence to the contrary <laughs> um, could change their mind. That's the certainty bias. In fact, when you draw a conclusion and you have that sense of certainty, oxytocin is released in your brain. The reward centers of the brain get activated. So what happens when you're in a situation where you don't know and you need to stay there, you need to bear uncertainty for a prolonged period of time? How many of you have had that experience? Anybody? There are all kinds of situations. You're waiting for a diagnosis. You're waiting to find out if you got into grad school. You're waiting to see if your book is going to be published <laughs> or not. You're waiting to see if it will be reviewed. Uh, you're waiting to see if World War III is going to start. <laughs> you know, There's a lot of uncertainty. Our tendency is to prematurely 
seek closure, to resolve the uncertainty before all the facts are in, because then we can get that oxytocin and, and relax. And where do we find in the Bible a story that corroborates what I'm saying? The archetypal story of not being able to bear uncertainty is the story of Jonah. Jonah. Hmm, I hadn't even thought of that. I have to think about that a whole bunch to, yeah. Jonah's not able to bear the uncertainty of not knowing how his prophecy will. And so he wants to run away. Sinai, there you go, another classic tale when Moses goes up for 40 days and he's supposed to come back down. And when the 40th day in their counting arrives, the Israelites say, Ha'ish Moshe Boshesh, he's, he's late. And lo yadanu mahayalo, we don't know what happened to him. The Midrash says that Satan, Satan, showed them a dead Moses on a funeral bier. And so they concluded that he must be dead. Had they waited a few more hours, there he was coming down with the tablets. And there would have been this huge celebration, right? Yudzain Tammuz. The 17th of Tammuz would have been this wonderful holiday celebrating the receiving of the Torah. There was the giving of the Torah. There would have been the receiving. Instead, Moses comes down the mountain and sees the Israelites worshiping the golden calf. And he shatters the tablets, and Yudzayan Betamuz becomes this day of mourning, the beginning of the various holidays of breakage, of shattering, of loss, of collapse. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. So here we have the archetypal uh, folly of not being able to bear uncertainty, not being able to be patient with not knowing that desire to prematurely uh, to define God, to make God small, to shrink God into an idol, into some, something we can control. What is, what is idolatry? It's making God uh, serve you at your behest rather than the other way around. Instead of being humble in face of the mystery, there's a kind of grandiosity in idolatry. Let's just read for a moment what Rav Avraham Yoshua Cohen Cook says about idolatry on page five, number 18. Every definition of God brings about heresy. Every definition is spiritual idolatry. The greatest impediment in the human spirit on reaching maturity 
results from the fact that conception of God is crystallized among people in a particular form, going back to childish habit and imagination. This is an aspect of the offense of making a graven image or a likeness of God, against which we must always beware. So again, if God is the unknowable mystery, Ainsof, anything that tries to diminish that and, and control God, or say God is this or God is that, um, is a form of spiritual idolatry. Now, what's psychological idolatry? Going back to, I hope you don't mind my zigzagging, going back to the psychological domain. Psychological idolatry has many shapes and forms, but it can be as simple as clinging to an image you have of yourself or another that is diminishing and partial. Do you notice how people often say, they'll say this about their partners or their friends or their mother or father. He always, she never, like the, you know those phrases, how people define one another sometimes by their faults rather than their strengths or we reduce one another to uh, one thing we see about the other person instead of the totality of their being. There's a beautiful uh, teaching about the marriage ceremony. When you get married, you've all witnessed a Jewish wedding where the woman circles the man and the man sometimes in contemporary ritual will also circle the woman. What does it mean? What is this encircling? So one of the Hasidic masters taught that the circling is to acknowledge the encompassing light of the soul. Every soul, the Ishbitzer Rebbe says, has two kinds of light. Or maybe this, this comes right from Svat Emet the Gera Rebbe. We have the light that dwells within us, which is the light of the soul that we have internalized, that we have made our own, that we have made conscious. And there's the encompassing light that is the light of our soul, which is as yet unrealized. And he, he paints a picture of there being a psychic umbilical cord from inside our, our inner light to this outer light, this transcendent light. And that as we grow, just like a tree, every year develops another ring with its bark, every year the soul internalizes a little more light from the encompassing light, and we grow these rings around us. We grow our souls. So when you get married and you circle your partner and your partner circles you, it's a way of acknowledging that I love you, I love what I know about you, and I honor the mystery of who you are that I do not know that you don't yet know. 
Now it's one thing to be open. Let's say you meet a stranger and you're infinitely curious about them. I just had dinner with Rabbi Shmuley and we got to know each other very quickly because we knew nothing really before <laughs> except the little bit we read about each other from each other's books. But it's another thing when you're married for 40 years. I've been married now 34 years. It's another thing to wake up every day with that same person and to still experience them as a mystery and to still be curious. Who are you? Who are you becoming, right? The tendency is to see that person and to make a lot of assumptions. But love is made up of a knowing and a not knowing, right? I love you for everything I know about you, and I love you for the mystery of who you are that I will never know. So psychological idolatry takes place when we think we know and we reduce people to the known. And we live in our assumptions, our prejudices. Uh, we don't bother to hear the end of the sentence. We finish it in our minds, right? So then we're not present. This is what I was saying about being a psychotherapist. The real art of the work of healing is presence, full presence, this open-hearted curiosity and coming each session completely with what in Zen Buddhism is called beginner's mind, don't know mind in Korean Zen, with the sense of, I'm going to be surprised. I have no idea who you are today and what will be revealed in this moment. The truth of the moment. I've been studying the psychoanalyst uh, Wilfred Bion, who was a British psychoanalyst who came to the States. He's no longer living. And he was influenced later in his life by teachings from Kabbalah, as was Carl Jung. And in both of their writings, you get this deep mysticism. And Bion talked about approaching every session, every encounter without memory, desire, or understanding. And he talked about being in that state of openness and how freeing that is. And maybe nothing will emerge. Maybe the session will be silent. But that openness to possibility allows the possibility of possibilities to emerge for something new and unknown and alive to happen. I think about the mana this way. The desert journey, like Abraham's journey of Lech Lecha, the Israelites' journey into the desert, these are both biblical tales of entering into the unknown, of leaving the known for the unknown. The Israelites give up the security of slavery, right? You'd think they'd be happy to be free, but they always want to go back to Mitzrayim. Why? 
because it was certainty in Mitzrayim. They knew what they were going to have for dinner. It was miserable, but it was familiar. We love the familiar. It gets that happy experience going in our brain of repetition, familiarity. I'm safe. Nothing new may happen, but I'm safe. But when the Israelites leave Egypt and become free and enter the Midbar, they have to eat manna. And manna is, even though it fell every day, there was an insecurity about it. And also there was a certain boredom with it at a certain point, right? It was both, kind of a paradox. And it says in Torah, why did they call it man? Ki lo yadu mahu, because they didn't know what it was. Lo yadu mahu. This word ma, what? What? It's a very important word. What is about living the question rather than the answer? Eating mana is for the curious. You get bored eating it every day unless you're curious. Anything you do every day gets boring if you're not curious. I once heard the poet Mary Oliver speak, and she so impressed me when she said that every day, every single day, she takes a walk around the very same pond in, uh, what's it called? Up up in Massachusetts on Cape Cod. She no longer lives on Cape Cod, but she did for decades. Every day she took a walk around the same pond, and then she would write a poem, and she would hide pencils in the trees, sharpened pencils, so if a poem started to come through her, she'd have a sharp pencil to pull. Now, I live near the forest, near Tilden Park in the hills of Berkeley. And I take a lot of hikes, but I take a lot of different hikes. You know, I really took that hike this week. I'm not going to do that one again. I got to do a new one to stay curious. So when I heard Mary Oliver speak, it really struck me that that curiosity, that beginner's mind, that ability to see the new, to be in the I don't know place, to be curious, makes it possible to eat mana, <laughs> to do the same thing, to be with the same partner every day, and for it to be fresh and new. Like it says, Hayom Hazeh, over and over again, the Torah says, this very day Torah is given to you, this very day, to feel like you received it this day. There's a Hebrew word I want to teach you, if you don't know it. Chochmah, wisdom. What is wisdom? So if you switch these two letters around, like that, backwards, it's koach ma. What is wisdom? It's the power of what? It's the ability to live and breathe and embody the question, not the answer. Answers, what happens when you get the answer to your question? You get a little smug, 
and you think you're finished. Unless you're a scientist, or unless you're a seeker, or unless you're an artist. Because knowing and not knowing are entwined in an infinitely ascending spiral. The more you quest and question, you get an answer. The answer doesn't leave you finished. It opens up new questions. That's the scientific method. And those new questions, when they are eventually answered, open up new questions. And so your knowledge and your curiosity, your knowing and your not knowing, form this infinitely ascending spiral of consciousness. I was at the Science and Non-Duality conference uh, two two weekends ago, and it was a gathering of physicists and cosmologists and mystics non-dual teachers. And I was like a small fry in this massive conference. I was like the only Jewish teacher there. But these cosmologists, my mind was being blown by the latest science, the latest understanding of creation. Uh, My jaw was dropping in awe and wonder. And the Big Bang was already old news in the newly emerging understanding of uh, the cosmology. And basically what the, the scientists have become mystics because they realize the limits of knowledge. They realize that no matter how much they learn and know about science, it just keeps opening up more and more infinite questions. And the more we learn, the more we realize how little we know. I remember being a little kid thinking I knew it all. And that know-it-all was the worst when I went off to Jerusalem and became from. I really knew it all. I was so obnoxious. I don't know how my family put up with me. Even worse, I was even worse than I was as an adolescent in the 60s, prehistoric time now. I knew it all. And now the older I get, I really like hanging out with my grandson because he's all about asking the questions. And I might have a few answers because I've lived a long time, but mostly I really know that I don't know anything and that most of all, I love the poetry of the not knowing. I like to share, maybe just to get out of this part of our brains, let me just share a poem or two, and then we'll come back to chokhmah, to wisdom. This is a poem by Rebecca Del Rio. It's called Prescription for the Disillusioned. Come new to this day. Remove the rigid overcoat of experience, the notion of knowing, the beliefs that cloud your vision. Leave behind the stories of your life. Spit out the sour taste of unmet expectation. Let the stale scent of what-ifs 
weft back into the swamp of your useless fears. Arrive curious without the armor of certainty. The plans and planned results of the life you imagined, live the life that chooses you, new every breath, every blink of your astonished eyes. I found this poem after my book was published, otherwise I would have tried to get permission, because it, kind of, it kind of says it all in a very shorthand, beautiful way. Do you all like Mary Oliver? Would you like to hear a Mary Oliver? Here's a Mary Oliver piece. She's, if you don't know her, I highly recommend. She's really one of the great poets of nature, of knowing God through nature. What is there beyond knowing that keeps calling to me? I can't turn in any direction, but it's there. I don't mean the leaves grip and shine or even the thrush's silk song, but the far-off fires, for example, of the stars, heaven's slow-turning theater of light, or the wind playful with its breath, or time that's always rushing forward or standing still in the same, what shall I say, moment. What I know I could put into a pack as if it were bread and cheese and carry it on one shoulder, important and honorable, but so small, while everything else continues unexplained and unexplainable. How wonderful it is to follow a thought quietly to its logical end. I've done that a few times but mostly I just stand in the dark field in the middle of the world, breathing in and out. Life so far doesn't have any other name but breath and light, wind and rain. If there's a temple, I haven't found it yet. I simply go on drifting in the heaven of the grass and the weeds. T.S. Eliot's East Coker, he says, in order to arrive at what you do not know, you must go by a way which is the way of ignorance. In order to possess what you do not possess, you must go by the way of dispossession. In order to arrive at what you are not, you must go through the way in which you are not. And what you do not know is the only thing you know. I have dozens of other poems from every single uh, mystical tradition, from Hindu mysticism, from Buddhist teachers. The wisdom of not knowing is not just a Jewish thing. It's, it's a universal thing. It's the counterpart to knowledge. Coming back to wisdom, chokhmah, koachmah, the power of what? The power of curiosity, of questioning. There's another passage 
from uh, the book of Job that says, which the pshat meaning, the simple meaning is, where does wisdom come from? But the Kabbalists read it differently. And the beauty of the Kabbalists and the Hasidic masters is that they would approach a well-known pasuk with complete beginner's mind and turn it inside out and give it a completely fresh understanding. You have it on your handouts. Number five on page two. So here, Asher ben David is quoting the Kabbalistic understanding of this verse. It's not where does wisdom come from, but wisdom comes from Ayn. May Ayn. Ayn is not from where, it's from Ayn, from nothingness. Where does wisdom originate? It pours out from the cosmic void, from the quantum void, from the place of not knowing. It doesn't come from reading a book. It doesn't come from listening to a podcast. It comes from the silence that you dive into in moments of meditation in contemplation, in doing what Mary Oliver was talking about, roaming through the woods, of being silent. When all our thoughts and thinking stop, when we're absolutely still, in those states of the mama, of utter stillness, when we become like an inanimate object, domain. There are different levels of silence. There's shtika, there's sheket, and there's dumama. So the first level is shtika, stop talking, be quiet. Then there's sheket, you start to hear, it's quiet. You pay attention. But then there's Dmama, which is the deepest level that takes you into not knowing. In Dmama, it says about Aharon, the one place, the one person who achieves Dmama in Chumash is Aharon. It says, Vayidom Aharon. This was after the death of his two sons. He's utterly still, utterly quiet. He's speechless. He doesn't cry against God. It's not fair. He's just still. And out of that stillness, he receives prophecy directly from God for the very first time. The one time God speaks directly to Aharon is right after that stillness, that silence. It's the silence that speaks. The inner power, the inner life force is called Ayn because thought does not grasp it nor reflection. 
concerning this, Job said, wisdom emanates from ayin. So in the Kabbalistic tree of life, you've seen those diagrams of the Sfirot. The highest point on the tree of life is called either keter or ayin, nothingness, emptiness, pregnant cosmic void. And the first point to emerge out of this womb of darkness is chokhmah, wisdom, Sophia in other religious traditions. And from chokhmah, everything else is created, the entire flow, the downward spiral from infinite into finite, emptiness into form, silence into words. This world is spoken or sung into existence. This is a vibrating symphony. Our molecules are dancing. We might think we're still, but it's really all a vibratory dance where we are being spoken or sung into existence, yesh mi'ayin, something out of nothing, moment by moment. So there's the downward flow of creation, and then there's the ascending ladder, Jacob's ladder of ascending, and going back to the source. So chokhmah is the portal. Creation is emanating from ayin through chokhmah, and when we ascend, where do we go with our wisdom? Where does real wisdom take you? It takes you back to the humble realization that we are nothing. Not in the sense that we lack worth. We are nothing in the sense that we're not a thing, separate from our source. So you know the joke of, you know, the rabbi is praying on Yom Kippur, or I am nothing, I am nothing, and the cantor comes, and he starts praying, I am nothing, I am nothing, and then the, the, the shamash, the janitor, sees them, he's inspired, and he starts praying, I am nothing. And the rabbi says to the cantor, look who thinks he's nothing, right? <laughs> Everybody knows that joke. It's a little silly, but it's also very cute. But the nothingness, this void that is the source of everything, it's not just the source of wisdom. It is our muse. It is where creativity comes from. It is where intuition comes from. When I'm stuck with any creative project, whether it's writing or developing a sermon or just thinking about a problem, I have to go to the forest and be silent and put down my thoughts and thinking and empty. Sometimes after work, I just go swim and do that mindless lap swimming. And in those moments of not knowing, new insight comes. I come back from the forest and I'm quickly typing up what came to me. My Yom Kippur sermon this year came while walking on the beach on the California coast. It just came like all at once. 
Me'ain, I don't know from where. You know from where? It comes from Ain, from this source. In a moment, we're going to do some Q&A, five more minutes. So Abraham, I think I'll tell... I'll tell a Hasidic story, because getting a little late, our minds, our conceptual thought starts, our brains get saturated with conceptual thought. And stories, like poetry, take us into another part of the brain. So the rabbis talked about the white fire of Torah. There's the Torah of words and letters, and then... If you look at, you'll get a visual of this on page four, number 12 at the top. This is a photograph of a few psukim from Shirat Hayam, the Song of the Sea. And it's written like bricks so that the white fire of Torah, the parchment, is revealed. It's the only place in Torah where it's written this way. It's sort of like a parting of the veil. Yamsuf, the sea splits. The natural order of creation uh, deconstructs. There's a parting of the veil. And so it's written in a Sefer Torah with that same style of the letters as if they are parting to make room for the white fire of Torah to be revealed. And so the legend says that at Mount Sinai, well, there there are several legends of the white fire, that when God wanted to give the Torah, it was copied from a primordial Torah that was written black fire upon white fire on God's arm. Here's the Hasidic rendition. Rabbi Yitzchak of Vorki and Rabbi of Remela of Trisk were the best of friends when they were young. They were chavrusas, and they would study Torah together. And not only did they share text, they shared all their deepest secrets. But they grew up, and they became rabbis, and they went to different shtetls, and they lived several kilometers away from one another. But they wanted to keep their friendship up. And so every Friday before Shabbos, Rabbi Yitzchak would write a letter to his friend, Rabbi Vremela, and he had a special letter carrier, his helper, his personal assistant, who would, you know, journey through the, through the mountains and down through the creeks, and deliver the letter to his friend in, in Trisk. And then he would wait as Rab Avramela would read the letter and write a response, and he would carry this response back to Rabbi Yitzchak. And this went on for years and years. Every Shabbos, they would share with one another their deepest thoughts, what they had learned from Torah that week, and as the years went on, the letter carrier, who was very loyal, he was getting a little older and a little more tired. And one era of Shabbos, he started thinking, I've been doing this a very long time. I wonder 
what's in the letter. And he had this curiosity. He wanted to peek, but he didn't. He, he couldn't do that. But the next week, it was a particularly arduous journey. And he got inside the forest, and he couldn't control himself. He opened it up to read Rabbi Yitzchak's letter. And lo and behold, what was it? A blank piece of paper. And he was so upset. What, am I the butt of some cosmic joke? They're making fun of me? But he's afraid, you know, how he, he didn't know what to do. So he put the letter back in the envelope. He delivered it. He took it to Trisk, and Rebbe Vremela gives him a letter to take back. In the middle of the forest, he opens it up, and it's also a blank. Gewalt. He's really, really frustrated. So that Shabbos, Rabbi Yitzchak sees that his letter carrier, his loyal assistant, is very upset. And he comes over to him, and he says, No, my friend, what, what's the matter? What, what's bothering you? And he tells, he confesses, he says, I'm so sorry, you know, I was disloyal, I read your letter, but I don't get it. Am I the butt of a joke, some kind of practical joke? And Rabbi Yitzchak takes him aside and he says, oh, my friend, I'm so sorry you took it that way. You've been so loyal. Truthfully, there are weeks when we share with one another the Torah teachings that were most meaningful to us. And it's back and forth, chevruta, long distance. We don't have email yet. Someday, my descendants will do this by email. You'll be out of a job. But sometimes my love for my childhood friend is so deep and so profound, and what I want to give over is beyond words. I can't put it in words. And so I send a blank to remind him of the white fire of Torah, that which is ungraspable, that which cannot be put into words. And so, my friends, I give you the white fire of Torah. May it become your muse. May not knowing be the source of inspiration for you for everything that you learn and receive and pursue in your life. So we'll pause here and I want to oh. Yeah. Please. And should I give the mic for questions? Okay. Then keep the questions short enough that I can repeat them. Okay, I have two questions. So you talked about how um, you know people that have been married a long time and they you know feel like they know their spouse pretty well, but but that um, you know they need to be open to how their spouse might be different that day or something. So my first question is: Do people really change? Can they change? And aren't they? kind of who they are, and number two, how do we turn off the chatter in our brains and the thinking and the talking to ourselves? Those are two very big questions. Okay, they're very different. The first question is, 
do our spouses or people, or in, people in our lives actually change? How do we stay open to the mystery when people seem to be the same? Is that that? Yes. Okay. Our not knowing opens up a space that allows people to say and do the unexpected. If we expect people to be the same, they give us the same. Because we're likely to say and do something that will evoke. It's like a dance. If I turn this way, my partner's going to turn that way. If I do a, a, a new step or no step, I'm allowing, I'm, I'm inviting change. Um, and the second question, remind me, was, yeah, how do you turn off, you turn off chatter? chatter? Well, that's the art of meditation is learning to dive into the unknown and be still. And in mindfulness meditation, you don't so much turn off the chatter, but you observe the chatter. You become mindful of it. And in becoming mindful of it, in becoming mindful of the contents of your mind, you realize you're not the contents, but you're the awareness of the contents. So it's like you step back into the self, the greater self, the God self, the pure awareness that is the cosmic consciousness. And there are techniques. Um, when you are absolutely physically still and to the point where no proprioceptive signals are sent to the brain, neurotheologists have um, shown that you have the, the brain has, is hardwired to experience God, that in the absence of movement and proprioceptive signals, you experience insof, boundlessness, boundary, boundarylessness. And I can vouch for that experience because I've been doing it for 40 years. Yes, Rabbi Shmuley. Moving the abstract to the practical. Um, someone wakes up tomorrow morning and says, you know, I was really inspired by that talk. I want to engage a five, ten-minute spiritual activity to help myself re-embrace the value of the spiritual consciousness of the unknown. What's, what's an activity you'd recommend? Well, y you could... You can begin to ask more questions. Um, even the things that you are completely familiar with bring curiosity to them. Every pixel of the known universe is filled with mystery. So just becoming more curious, um, in inquiry, that's one very simple practice. Like if you think you already know something, step back from that and say, well, what do I not know here? Um, I think entering into the practice of some kind of silencing, turning off, unplugging, for God's sake, our computers, our emails, our texts and social media, all of that is... It's an assault on the senses. It doesn't allow for the quieter states. So even if you're not Shomer Shabbat in a halachic fashion, unplug for 24 hours. 
Take a little bit of time each day to just observe your breath, to be still, to be curious about yourself. That might be a place to start. Yeah. I'm curious. Um, I knew that was So similar to Eastern religion. Very much so. And I'm wondering, was there communication between okay. Jewish mystics and the Eastern mystics? And yeah, so the, the, quest, the question is the similarity between Zoharic mystical concepts of not knowing and ideas from the East, from Buddhism and Hindu mysticism. Was there communication between these different traditions? Yes. And it's also possible that the truth is accessible to all of us. And so the same source that Hindus draw upon and that Buddhists draw upon, Jewish mystics drew upon. But there's a lot of creative borrowing that has gone on through the centuries. There was a time in history when the Israelites did uh, animal sacrifices. Where did they get that? Well, they got that from the peoples who came before them, right? So there is a lot of creative borrowing, and you can, it's fascinating to look at the parallels. Um, there's a lot of Similarity in Sufi stories and Hasidic tales. Did the Hasidic masters read Sufism? It's possible that in Spain, before the expulsion in 1492, Jews, Muslims, and Christians were living in close proximity, and there was a sharing of religious uh, ideas. Um, some Jewish scholars have pointed out that the resurgence of the divine feminine in Kabbalah paralleled what was happening in Christian mysticism with the doctrine of Mary, Mary becoming a more important figure. So the divine feminine, was there dialogue? Perhaps. But maybe it's like the hundredth monkey idea, that when an idea comes down to the world, it just comes down and pours into everybody's minds all at once. So take your pick. Yeah, I have a question about the title of, of, the, of your speech tonight, The Wisdom of Not Knowing. And you define knowing as being an intellectual activity, creating constructs that help us have a sense of uh, you know, knowledge of the world. I wonder, you know, could you talk about the wisdom of not feeling? Is that part of what you're speaking about tonight, taking a break from? Feelings? Ah. Perception? Okay, the question is, is, is there also the wisdom of not feeling in counterposed to the wisdom of not knowing? Knowing what we feel is also somewhat an activity that takes place in the cortex part of the mind. We label our feelings. So thoughts and feelings are not that separate. I would talk about taking a break from feelings, the wisdom of not feeling, as part of um, the practice of equanimity, 
shivyon nefesh, or hishtavut, that um, the Hasidic masters talk about um, with deep faith, you find a place of equanimity where you're not being yanked around by the turbulence of your good feelings and bad feelings. Like a, feelings are mediated by our judgments and thoughts. How does a feeling become bad? Because we think, we judge it as bad. Otherwise, it's just a feeling. Let's say I'm sad. It's not a bad thing. Sometimes there's sadness. Sadness is kind of beautiful and real. But if I tell myself I shouldn't be sad, or you're always sad, or I make a judgment about it, then I create tension. So in equanimity, the feelings might all be there, but there's no attaching, and there's no judging, no pushing away, and no clinging. And the same with mindfulness. Thoughts might be happening, but I'm not attaching, and I'm not pushing away. I'm just observing and witnessing. So does that answer your question? Okay. Yes. Um, I was just thinking that maybe it's a difference between sensing and feeling. Is there a difference between I, I sensing just, and I, feeling? Yeah, no, I mean, I was just thinking that, that mm -hmm. maybe that's a difference between sensing and feeling, mm -hmm. or awareness and feeling. But really, mm -hmm. my question is, yeah. can you tell me again the name um, and the author of the first poem you read? Uh, Rebecca Del Rio. She's quite a poet. And what was the name I don't know if poem? she's even published, but people are sending me her poems. I'm on. What, what's the What's the first line? Sorry. Oh, thank you. She, she has it. Prescription for the disillusioned. Thank you. I really like that. Okay. Any other questions? Okay, thank you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to please consider going to www.valleybaitmadrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.